We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. Good morning. Special good morning to anyone who's a father here, or a grandfather, or a stepfather, or some kind of father. I hope it's a good day for you. If God is loving and powerful, how come there's so much suffering in the world? Take the killing of about 40 children in Uganda this weekend by the Islamic State or the murder of 11 worshippers at a synagogue in Pittsburgh, or the unjustified discriminatory use of force by a Minneapolis police force on George Floyd. If God is loving, why does he permit suffering? If God is powerful, why doesn't he put a stop to it, like the genocide of the Uyghurs in Western China under the Chinese Communist Party, or the invasion by Russia in Ukraine? If God's powerful, why doesn't he stop it? Well, it's understandable people have such questions, such feelings, such emotions that are moving, so moving, such viewpoints are understandable and persuadable, persuasive. But they're persuasive in many ways because people haven't spent much time in reflection. And what we'll discover from our text this morning is the passage that we're about to engage in, an ancient poem that still speaks to us today, is something that makes these ideas, these ideas of agnosticism, ridiculous. Why ridiculous? Ridiculous because Psalm 2 tells us the entire world is in revolt. The entire world is in revolt against God. And the psalm tells us what God's going to do about that revolt. So if you have a Bible close at hand, I encourage you to take it out and take a look as we walk through the four sections quite clearly laid out of our passage this morning from Psalm 2. First three verses deal with the rebellion, the fourth and fifth verses with the response and the sixth to ninth verse, the declaration, and the conclusion in verse 10 to 12 is the ultimatum. We're in a series this summer looking at Jesus in the Psalms, and we focus on the centrality of Christ in the Old Testament. It's a topic that has fascinated people for thousands of years. I would highly commend to you a little book by Walter Kaiser, which is available in our library, that deals with the issue of the Messiah in the Old Testament. Of course, there are many critical scholars who would deny the existence of a Messiah in the Old Testament, particularly looking at non-biblical sources like the Apocrypha and the Mishnah. But Kaiser does something different. He addresses those concerns and looks at 39 citations in the Old Testament dealing with a Messiah. Well, there's a lot there. It's a massive topic, and it's very, very interesting. And if if you're intrigued by it, then I would encourage you 
to go to the library, get a copy, or pick up a copy online. And maybe if you're going on vacation this summer, put it in your backpack or in your suitcase, take it to the beach or wherever you go, hiking, and contact me after you've read it, and let's have a chat about this book. Well, Christ himself, we don't have to go to Kaiser so much, Christ himself said in Luke 24, everything written about me in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled in me. But what does it really mean in Christ in Psalm 2? How are we to understand Christ in Psalm 2? Because what we're handling here is a reflection by a king on a coronation or an enthronement. King David on the occasion of his coronation. And it's not ordinary prose that we're perhaps more accustomed to reading, but it's poetry. And I, for one, have struggled and continue to struggle with this text and have been helped immensely by Dick Lucas in London and by Elizabeth Rohrer in the other Cambridge who have helped me understand something of the poetry of this text. So let's jump in to the first three verses. The rebellion. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Here in New England, at least since the Boston Tea Party, we're not used to talking about kings and rulers, particularly from that other place that we shall not mention. <laughs> but an analogy may be helpful from, take the business world, where there are acquisitions and mergers and takeovers. Not that I am an expert on business, but Google can help me a lot. Well. I ask you the question, what was the biggest acquisition that occurred last year in the business world? Does anybody remember what that acquisition was? Microsoft's takeover of a gaming company, Activision Blizzard, for the princely sum of $68 billion. It's the biggest takeover last year. Well, in the business world, big companies gobble up little companies. And there wasn't much difference in the ancient world where big kingdoms gobbled up little kingdoms, and where the little kingdoms or the little guys would receive protection in response, in return, for their fealty and their obedience to the greater king. But when there was a change in leadership, it created a crack in the door, if you like, an opportunity for the bigger king or the little king to rebel. And that's probably what's happening here. Remember, it's poetry. He says, the kings of the earth. That's exaggeration. It's poetic language. It's hyperbole, transforming local politics into a global confrontation. And despite the best efforts to pinpoint exactly what historic moment this is referring to, we still do not know. But what we do know is that there is a noisy restlessness, a fermentation, if you like, a foment a rebellion that is poised to strike against this king, opposing not only Yahweh himself, but his anointed, his anointed king, the Messiah, King David. And what's important to understand is that the Lord had made a covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7. Covenant is a word that's difficult to translate and a word that we do not use very much in English. It's not a contract, it's not a business deal, it's not a transaction, 
It's a chosen relationship with obligations both parties agree to and guarantee. It's a secure, exclusive, demanding, purposeful relationship between Yahweh and David. And David, in obedience to Yahweh, will become Yahweh's representative on planet Earth. In 1 Samuel 16, 13, we read how the prophet Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And the anointing was important because it signaled the start of a new phase, a new status, a new role that David had. Well, this past May, perhaps you read Time magazine and you saw on the front page the coronation of King Charles III of the United Kingdom. Various media outlets picked up on the anti-monarchic protesters in London with various placards that said, not my king, not my king, not my king. Well, others picked up on the apparently secretive nature of the anointing ceremony within Westminster Abbey, when the archbishop behind a screen anoints the monarch. Well, whether you watched it or not, or seen something about it, maybe you got a sense of the majesty, of the solemnity of that occasion, of a new monarch after so many decades. Obviously, King Charles III is very different from King David of Israel. But we get a sense of something very significant and special happening. And even if in today, in the UK, the rituals and the gestures and the symbolism are lost on modern sensibilities, something momentous was happening. Well, for David, he was the crowned, the installed, enthroned king, Yahweh's king on earth. And the covenant was outlined in 2 Samuel 7. It's a major passage, a very significant text in the Old Testament. And so I'm going to read from chapter 7, verse 8 of 2 Samuel. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Well, that was the covenant that Yahweh had made with King David. And then in verse 3, we see this little phrase, an embedded speech about bonds and cords. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Again, it's poetic language. It's not necessarily literal. But what it signals figuratively is the enslavement and the oppression that these kings felt from Yahweh and from his king. They wanted to rip off the restraints, to reject the rule of Yahweh, reject his law that they felt was imposed upon them. And that's why the psalmist begins the, the, the psalm with, why? Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot? In vain, why? Not because he wants reasons, but because he's astonished. It's futile. Futile to reject Yahweh and his anointed ruler of heaven and earth. Rather than rejecting the Lord, rather than rejecting his anointed one, they should have rejected their own sins. They should have rejected their own idols. They should have forsaken their evil ways and their evil thoughts. 
much as Moses was encouraged to do in Deuteronomy 9, to reject self-righteousness or stubbornness, or as King Josiah in 2 Kings 23, 6, was to reject the vessels to Baal, or as King Manasseh in 2 Chronicles 30, 14, was to reject the incense altars. That's the kind of thing they should have rejected, not rejecting the yoke of Yahweh. Well, this revolt by an international coalition was futile. The nations didn't realize it back then. It was in vain. And people don't realize that today, that there will be constant, perpetual conflict between nations until the end of history. Why? The psalm tells us, because the nations refuse peace with God. Therefore, they can have no world peace. And while the nations accept false ideologies and idolatries, they can have no true knowledge of God. This is the curse of living in a post-Genesis 3 world, perpetual conflict between nations until the end of history. Well, let's move on to the next section of verse 4 to 6, the response. And he who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Contrast the earthly kings who sit in their earthly thrones in their earthly palaces with the heavenly king, the great king, the king of kings, the lord of lords who sits in the heavens. It's like pivoting from little league to the major leagues. It's a completely different universe. And Yahweh's laughter isn't the back-slapping, joking perhaps of a dugout, but it is the laughter of a scornful, disdainful, angry emotion about the futility of those whose plans, no matter how hard they try to resist, will ultimately fail against this king. And he says very dramatically in an emphatic statement, I have set my king. It's an unusual phrase. Literally, it means I have poured out my king. As a craftsman pours out the molten metal into a mold to create an idol or an image. Because in the ancient world, it was this image that represented the authority and the presence of a king while he was absent. Ancient kings considered themselves living images of their gods. The king of Mesopotamia, for example, is defected in his chariot while his god, Ashur, is in, above in the heavens. And the message is clear. Whatever the king on earth is doing, that is exactly the same as his, his god is doing above him. And so the heavenly king, the great king here, uses that type of logic to signal that he's set up his king, not, not with a metal image, but with an image of flesh. And he's chosen Zion, this intriguing and mysterious and complex motive that is spread throughout Scripture. There's a poetic paradox to Zion, because Zion itself is a small hillock, a, a minor crest of a hill on a by a modest fort, by a minor kingdom, surrounded by vast empires. And yet the poet sees Zion as God's chosen city, the queen of the nations, the meeting point between heaven and earth, the very lo locus of where God himself dwells, and from whence God blesses and brings salvation to the ends of the earth. I've set my king in Zion. Yahweh has literally poured out his image into the image of his representative here, King David. 
Great David's greatest son is cited in Psalm 110. Christ himself, as we learn in the New Testament, is, has the exact imprint of his nature in Hebrews 1.3. It is him who is installed as the unchallengeable ruler of the world. And ultimately, it is God who installs Christ himself as the king of kings over all. And this, and this is terrifying. It's terrifying because it's a manifestation of the anger of God against all opposition to himself. Perhaps think of a, a, a spouse who's been betrayed by, by, their, by their spouse, and think of the jealous anger that that arouses within them. That perhaps gets to a little bit of this type of anger, this manifestation of Yahweh himself. And we read about it at the end of history in Revelation 6:15. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich, the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves. And among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of wrath, their wrath has come. And who can stand? Who can stand? In the next section, verse 7 to 9, we have the declaration of the Anointed One. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. How are we, how are we to understand this sonship language? Usually it refers to a biological or an adopted child or son. But in the ancient world, the kings themselves regarded themselves as sons of the gods, of their gods. So, a pharaoh in Egypt would be regarded as a living Horus, one of the Egyptian gods. Israel himself regarded himself as God's son in Deuteronomy 32, 18 to 20. And here, at this moment, King David enters a new position, like a begetting, not a biological begetting, but a begetting of a new status by the election of God, the call of God through his covenant. And the background of this father-son language is quite important. David was called the firstborn of Yahweh, from Psalm 89, which says, He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and my rock of my salvation, and I will make of him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Being the firstborn of Yahweh had certain characteristics. First, there was this official covenant relationship as the Father's representative on earth. Second, he was to exemplify the character, the attributes of Yahweh himself, even repeating the words of the Father, or even expressing the similar anger that the Yahweh would have to the actions on earth. And thirdly, he was also to inherit the property of the Father as the firstborn son. So the Father had given this mandate to the Son, a mandate to rule the earth. The ends of the earth, verse 8, picks up that theme of kings of the earth in verse 2. So the installation of Christ himself as King of kings and Lord of lords is terrifying, right because it's a manifestation of the anger of God. And he will just need to ask the Father, and the Father will give him the world. But what will he do with that inheritance? Well, we see in the passage, verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. He will crush all opposition. Iron probably 
a scepter represents strength, the unalterable rule of God over the nations. And the clay, dashed in pieces like a potter's vessel, like the Egyptian custom where a pharaoh would take the names of cities that he controlled and put them in a clay vase in his temple. And if the city would rebel against him, then the king would come, smash the clay pot in the presence of his deity, signaling a terrifying symbolic act. It's an unmistakable message. Nations that continue to rebel will be crushed easily and irreparably. The exceptional severity of this anointed king reflects the divine anger towards all rebellion, all opposition to his rule. And this gets picked up in the New Testament in several different ways. Christ speaks about cities, for example, in Matthew eleven twenty-one: Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Christ also sing singles out leaders. In Matthew 23:29, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? And then the three references in the last book of Scripture, Revelation, refers to nations, his judgment on the nations. Revelation 2:27. he will rule over the nations with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. In Revelation 12:5, she gave birth to a male child, one who is able to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. In Revelation 19:15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword from which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Where does that leave us? Verse 10, the ultimatum. The ultimatum is submit or perish. Submit or perish. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Neither the Father nor the Son, the anointed king, delight in the destruction of nations. Ezekiel 33:11 says, I have no delight in the destruction of the wicked, but that the wicked may turn from his way and live wise up. Submit to the Lord and to his anointed, because he will put down all revolt, and he will rule the world. Great David's greatest son will return to the earth, put down all rebellion, and establish his rule forever. There's an, an, an irony here. Did you catch it? Kings and judges were meant to be wise already. That's why they were kings and judges. But here, they're fools. The Greek translation is to accept instruction. And again, the irony is that these leaders had not done so. They had plotted, they had devised, they had strategized their own plans. 
just like those in Psalm 38, verse 12. They meditate treachery all day long. But the opposite is a path of wisdom, to ponder, to muse, to remember, to take heed, like Proverbs 4.26. Ponder, ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Throughout Israel's history, Yahweh and the prophets had warned the leadership not to transform the kingship of Judah into a merely human political institution without genuine knowledge of Yahweh or genuine obedience to His ways. We see that in 1 Kings 2, 1 Kings 3, 1 Samuel 12, 1 Chronicles 12, 16, and 20. It's all over the Old Testament. And yet, how are these nations to respond? Are they to submit and live? Or are they to rebel and perish? The psalmist says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. It's a posture, a complex posture of fear and joy, of terror and delight. We pick up some feeling of this from Psalm 104, verse 31 to 32. It says, May the glory of the Lord, the glorious Lord, endure forever, this eternal, transcendent God, King of kings, and may He rejoice in His works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. The exhortation is to kiss the sun, perhaps an unusual phrase, or strikes us as modern people as a bit odd, but it's picking up an Aramaic word for sun, sonship. Aramaic, the language used at that time as an international lingua franca. And the implication here is that the anointed son is not simply for the Hebrew nation, but he is for all the entire world to prove their submission to him. And it was customary for a lesser king to show submission to a greater king, to honor them, to homage them, to show through a kiss or a bow. You see that in 1 Kings 19.18. And the significance here is not so much the kiss, but what is behind the kiss, the submission, the attitude, the loyalty, the love for the greater king. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. And again, we see this mirroring of the wrath of the son and the wrath of the father, showing that he is the authentic, the legitimate king. Human anger can be uncontrolled, vindictive, or capricious. But here this is totally under control, laser-focused anger, targeted against the revolt. In each section throughout this psalm, as we've been looking at it, there is an embedded speech. In verse 3, we see after the action of the rebel kings, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their bonds away from us. In verse 6, we see... The, the heavenly king, as for me, I have set my king. And in verse 7, I will tell of the decree. But what did you notice after this section? What did you see in this final part of the psalm? What did you observe? Nothing. There's no embedded text. It's poetic suspense. How will these kings respond to the ultimatum? How will they react to this summons that they've been given by the great king? Well, we know from many examples in Scripture how kings and leaders have responded in the past. 
in persisting obstinately in their own rebellion and what that leads to. Just think of David's predecessor, King Saul, who claimed he was obeying God, who claimed he was carrying out the, God's plan for the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15, and yet it was the prophetic word by the Holy Spirit through Samuel that exposed the real nature of what was going on. In 1 Samuel 15, 22, he said, for rebellion, rebellion is as the sin of divination, presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. And not long after King Saul perished on Mount Gilboa, a dramatic end signaling what happens to the rebel. Well, for those in our own day who feel invincible, emboldened, indignant, entitled, right in their own eyes, whether like the non-Israelite kings or King Saul, the same ultimatum stands. Rebel and perish or submit and live. The New Testament picks this theme up again and again. Take Hebrews 2 verse 3. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? How shall we neglect? How shall we escape? Well, Psalm 2 ends on a high note. The final phrase, blessed are all who take refuge in him. It's an exquisite enveloping from Psalm 1 to Psalm 2, the beginning of Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, the end of Psalm 2, blessed are all who take refuge in him. It frames the introduction of the Psalter as if the psalmist is announcing to the world, here is the path of true happiness, here is the pathway of true joy. Delight in the instruction of the Lord and worship of the Lord alone. This kind of exclusive, reverential worship this is the pathway. This is the invitation. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Here is the pearl of great price, that exquisite comfort, the gospel treasure that gives confidence to all who feel threatened, intimidated, under attack, assaulted by the schemes of men. It's an invitation to take comfort in great David's greatest son because it is there that there is shelter, a safe house, a safe house for sinners, not away from God, not in distance from God, but in God himself. He's described in so many words, so many images throughout the scriptures. He's like a rock in Deuteronomy 32, 37. He is a shield, Psalm 144, verse 2. He's like a mother bird, Psalm 57, verse 1, in the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. This was illustrated in our New Testament reading of Acts chapter 4. The believers had been pressured, oppressed by the, the Pharisees and the leaders, and they cried out. They cried out for confidence to boldly proclaim in the midst of their problems, in the midst of the threat. And Jesus himself is the refuge. He is a triumphant king, not without scars himself, not without wounds himself. He is, in Newman's, uh, Henry Newman's words, that the wounded healer, the triumphant one who had to suffer these things before enter into his glory. 
As the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Christ himself is the refuge. He is the one the psalmist is pointing us towards. The Hebrews write in chapter 6, verse 18, it's impossible for God to lie. This is God's word that we are privileged to handle this morning. We who have fled to refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, not an anchor that goes down, but an anchor that goes up, where Christ has gone for us, the forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever on the order of Melchizedek. This is our invitation this morning. A few weeks ago, we had the pleasure of a visit of a couple of our missionaries from Africa, Stuart and Cynthia Foster, serving in Bible translation in Mozambique for many decades. Recently, Stuart published a book about the covenant. It's called Highly Favored, Our Powerful God's Covenant with You. And in it, he puts some very helpful words to help us understand the nature of this covenant, this new covenant. We have favor with our powerful God, more wonderful than we can ever imagine, but harder too. It goes way beyond, Stuart says, the feeble and flimsy things we ask for. It's a commitment that is unsettling, sometimes painful, but always wonderful. So there we have it, an invitation to submit, submit to the rule of God, to submit to the will of God, the plans of God, the man of God, the representative of God, the Word of God, the anointed, installed, enthroned, glorified, coronated Son of God, to submit to Him, to take refuge in Him, and experience true blessing, to experience comfort in the midst of trial, in the midst of adversity. This Christ, this anointed one, this triumphant King Himself who suffered, a King who doesn't oppress or intimidate or devise his own plans, one who is a, a source of blessing and divine love. Or the alternative, the ultimatum, is to resist, to obstinately rebel, with the result to be crushed, to perish, under the terrifying wrath of great David's greatest son. The book of Hebrews reminds us in chapter 9, verse 27, it's appointed once for men to die, and after that, face judgment. What choice will you make? Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you that your everlasting arms are ready and welcome to receive us. From the storms of life, from the assaults and threats of men. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would have mercy on us this day. We pray, too, that you'd have mercy on us on our judgment day, when before you all our desires are seen, all our motives stripped away and transparent before the eyes of the one who created the universe. We cry out for your mercy today. 
And we pray it in Jesus' name.